you know, then I finally started to see a therapist again who had no association with religion or Mormonism. Really, like he knew nothing about the dogma. I knew nothing about it. So here I'm trying to explain that. And finally he said to me, he's like, so what happens if you don't go to church? And I was like, excuse me, what? Like that's, that's an option. I'm Emily McDowell, and this is Quitted, a podcast about quitting. Hey, everybody, it is Emily. Holly is off today, so you just get me. Um, you get me and the phenomenal, wonderful Zach Anderson, who is here on the podcast today as our guest. And I am doing just a very short intro. This is a long episode. I really want to get to Zach. Um, I just want to say first that Zach is very much in the middle of living his quitting story, which means that it requires a certain kind of bravery for him to come here and talk about it. Zach was raised in the Mormon church, and he is also a gay man. And he talks with me today about his process of leaving the church and then coming out in his mid-30s, which also meant leaving a marriage and undoing a lifetime of beliefs about God and his own worth as a human being, perfectionism, just to name a few small things. This is a very personal and at times raw story. And I am so grateful to Zach for sharing it with us because it's really important to not just highlight the stories of people who have come out the other side of a big transition, but also hear from folks who are still wrestling with change and who are still figuring it out. And so we are thrilled to have Zach on the podcast today. Before we get into the episode, just a reminder that we are a self-funded podcast. We make this podcast with the help of our patrons, which is you guys. Holly and I don't get paid to do this. Uh, we don't have any sponsors. We don't have any ads. It is just us and you. And so if you want to financially support this podcast, you can do that at uh, patreon.com forward slash quitted. Uh, you can also support us by sharing with your friends, talking about it, um, following, downloading, leaving a review, rating us, all of that stuff. So we really, really appreciate all of our patrons and all of the support and all of the folks who are listening and sharing it with your people. Thank you so much. And with that, Zach Anderson. Zach Anderson, welcome to Quitted. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. We so appreciate it. So Holly and I put out a call for people who have left religion on Instagram. This is how you came to us. And <laughs> so many people recommended you. And so then... I went onto your Instagram and then I fell down the rabbit hole of your Instagram and I basically read the entire thing, <laughs> which don't let that freak you out. Um, and it was, it's just amazing. Like your story is awesome. You're awesome. You really pull off short shorts better than anyone I've ever seen. So I appreciate it. <laughs> I will take that compliment so, times a thousand. Please take it to the bank. So welcome and and thank you for being here. Thank you. I have been just loving this podcast tremendously as someone who has a lot of shame in quitting things and has avoided that to my detriment many times. Mm. That well, the, thank you so much. The stories that you share resonate with me so much. And it's hard for me not to also just get emotional that my story resonates with people where they felt the need to, you know, recommend me for this. And I think one of the big things is for me, when I when I hear that, of course I'm I'm honored. And also it's a place where 
my story is my own, and I honor the people who choose to stay in religion or spirituality, and in my case, Mormonism, and recognizing that you know their experiences can be valid while I'm also honoring my traumatic experience within Mormonism and religion. Absolutely. And, yeah. and I, th- I, I want to make, I felt like that was, that's really important for me to make clear from the beginning is I have so much love and respect for people who choose to stay in a religion or within Mormonism. And yet at the same time, I, I hope that they honor and respect my experiences if they're listening to this and, and how much it's impacted me and my story. Mm, that's really beautifully put. Yeah. Yeah. So let's start with your story. <laughs> let's get into your story. I want to s- just frame this up a little bit by saying, if you don't know Zach, Zach has quit many things um, in the last few years in particular. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so sort of a snowball of quitting that I want to ask you about. But, you know, your story includes leaving the Mormon church and then, you know, also quitting being straight and perfectionism, dieting, diet culture, all kinds of things. So I want to kind of rewind and begin at the beginning with whatever you think the beginning is. It's amazing how once you quit one thing, how that leads into an avalanche of realizing the other things that are no longer serving you. And so it's hard to choose where to start coming from an all or nothing mentality to then realizing that sometimes the all can be quitting everything and uh, where that starts (laughs) from. (laughs) I hate to say that, but that's kind of the truth. But given in the context of, of me and I think religion and why I ultimately chose to leave, I have to give some context as far as where I was born and, and that. So I grew up in Mesa, Arizona, which is a predominantly Mormon community Mormon is a short word that Mormons don't like to hear anymore. They now prefer the full name of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I come from pioneer heritage on both sides of my family. So, you know, people who quit their lives to be able to choose a faith that resonated with them. And uh, both of my parents are from small town Idaho. So pioneer heritage and Mormonism is practically in my DNA. So I grew up in a, in a very predominant Mormon community. I went to Brigham Young University on a swimming scholarship. I served a mission for the Mormon church, you know, it, while I was in college. And then I went back to, to Brigham Young University. Mm-hmm. So I based so much of my life, of my understanding of who I was, as a Mormon, because that's what resonated with me. And I did everything in my power to be exactly who I thought God expected me to be as a, as a Mormon. I mean, that's, that's really what dictated all of my choices. But to complicate things, uh, the reality is, is I'm a gay man. I came out nine months ago, eight months ago. And that was also complicated by the fact of being raised in a anti-LGBTQ, homophobic environment where it was challenging for me to accept who I was. And I was led into a series of dialogue and expectations where... I was promised that if I did everything that Mormonism expected of me and taught me, and if I was exactly obedient, and if I prayed hard enough, if I fasted hard enough, if I did all the things Mm. perfectly, then this, what Mormons call a same-sex attraction, this affliction, Mm -hmm. this burden would be taken away from me. And... Mm. That's how I lived my life is in this constant fear that I would be found out. And so I did everything possible to prove to God, to prove to everyone else that I wasn't gay. And I mean, Mm. you can hear me now, and I'm not going to make a generalization about my own (laughs) speaking abilities, but this, this isn't a surprise to 
anyone who knows me either, just based off of observation. Yeah. I was the last person to acknowledge that I was gay. Mm. But it was all in hopes that that would be taken away being exactly what Mormonism wanted me to be. And so I have a... I don't have a special story, I would say, in regard to being a, a gay man within Mormonism. And I certainly don't have a special story as far as someone who has become disenchanted with religion or Mormonism. What I have found is there are few people who talk about the experience of leaving, of being all in, and then also leaving because of the, I mean, you leave everything. And there are so many Mm -hmm. consequences of that. And I would love to say that my relationships in the first 37 years, attempting to be a straight man, that those relationships haven't changed just like in my trying to leave Mormonism in the last, you know, as I started to exit about five years ago, that those types of dynamics and those relationships haven't changed, but they have from family dynamics to close friends and everything in between. And I recognize that people don't know how to respond to me, but that's also just because I'm not the same person that I was when I was Mormon and when I was doing all those things that were expected of me where I was the person who was exactly obedient, who was a textbook Mormon. Right. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine that that is really painful and that that's, and that it's hard. And, you know, you're, you're leaving behind, even if it's something that not only it's not, it goes so far beyond, I don't agree with this, but this, this religion doesn't give me permission to exist. Right. Even though, you know, so you, you make the choice to leave that behind, but you still have, you know, you still, the there are people you love, there's community you love, there's all of that that comes along with that choice. When you quit something or when you leave something or when you stop something, it takes a lot of courage and you don't understand the consequences fully until you do that thing. And it follows. That's why there's a lot of fear in doing it. It's one of the reasons why I choose to talk about my story in leaving and choosing to be open now. Even before I came out as gay, I started to be really open and active about my removal of myself from from Mormonism. And that, that has come at a cost with relationships, especially within my own family. And I don't I don't, I want to make it clear. I don't fault my family for the way that they have chosen to respond. Mm -hmm. I, I recognize that it's a safety mechanism. I recognize that I am also at fault with how I have engaged or chosen not to engage as a safety measure, as a Mm -hmm. way to protect myself. You know, I always knew that there was something different about me. You know, I I can't recall a time in my life where I wasn't attracted to men. Mm-hmm. And so when you hear the type of dialogue that you do about what Mormons call the law of chastity, what evangelicals might call um, purity culture, you internalize a lot of what's being said about how, you know, those desires are second to murder, that, you know, you'll be condemned to hell if you act on them, that it's, you know, that it is an affliction that you can solve or resolve. Right. Overcome. Right. Something that can be overcome. Exactly. And so it creates a lot of self-loathing. It creates a lot of feeling like you're the broken one and cause to believe that you're the one who can change something that is actually an inherent part of who you are. And so, you know, get having that type of dialogue from a young age is really traumatic. Um, since then I've been diagnosed with, you know, chronic PTSD or complex PTSD, I should say, just from such a religious and spiritual traumatic event. And, 
you know, I didn't tell anyone that I was, you know, attracted to men until I was serving as a missionary for the Mormon church. And I, t- I, for the first and how time, old w- how old were you then? So Sorry. I would have been about 20. Mm, so you've carried this through your whole adolescence, all of high school, right? carried it to BYU. Okay. So you're a missionary. Right. Well, and, and mind you, that was also really hard because I was, te- again, I, I'm, I'm not the best at straight acting. It's not a strength for me. It's like that is, <laughs> despite all the years that of practice that I put into it, it was not a strength. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so I, on top of that, I was teased by, you know, peers my age who are also Mormon. And mm. so there is even more shame in that by people in my own congregation. And, yeah. you know, so there just became an, a, a greater hypervigilance to that I have to do more to. Yeah, to overcompensate, right? right? Like exactly. it's this idea of I have to make up for this, for this thing about me, this core piece of me that is wrong. Right. And I did yeah. that. And I did that in so many ways too, because, you know, I swam in college. I swam at a really high level. I went to the NCAA national championships, but I was doing all of these things in order to gain God's favor in the way that I was taught that God was to be and to receive this validation from God. And so when you base all of that perfectionist mentality and you think that you can, you know, you can gain God's favor with everything that you do, it's really challenging to see how you have inherent worth. And that's something that I'm trying to learn now. And so the first time that I told anyone, it was a, it was my mission president. So he was a ecclesiastical leader. And uh, I told him that I was attracted to men and it led into a series of questions about what it was that I found attractive, like what it was that I like hoped would happen to me sexually, like very probing questions. So things that I actually hadn't happened, but what like what I found to be attractive and those types of things. And, and you are put in these, these types of predicaments where you, you do feel an obligation to tell them and then to be truthful to them because you feel like your salvation is on the line. Right. And so once I did that, then I, I, it's like, I felt the need to continue telling whoever my next ecclesiastical leader was those, you know, I'm attracted to men and, and these types of things. And it would, you know, lean into this diatribe of things and every leader would respond differently some would you know do it compassionately and others would kind of reinforce the shame that was involved around it or the you have the potential to be able to change these things so when i came home from my mission i was about 22 years old and that was the first time i i told a local leader And uh, I was sent to a conversion therapist and Mm. it was also, you know, around the time that I, that I told my parents and my family. And I remember when I told my family, I told them over the phone, I I called, believe one of my sisters first and another sister. And then I finally called my parents and I had a final the next day, but I just had this feeling like I had to tell them. And I wish I could say the response was good, but. Mm, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, I'm not looking at it now. I mean, I'm not upset. It's I wish that it would have been received a lot better and a lot differently, but they're doing they were doing the best they can in the same dialogue and the same belief system that I was, the same one that I was raised in. And I was the youngest of four. So it follows that that thought was there. You know, and so no matter and what. And they have fear. You know, they're trying to protect you, right? right? Like they're they're af- afraid of what that means for you. Right. To say this, I'm, I imagine. Right. right. I'm sure. And so, but I never framed it as I was gay. I framed it as what, I struggle with same-sex attraction because that was the language that I was taught to in order to be able to have that conversation. And so I kind of went back into the closet, but I still had this obviously really complicated relationship with it because, you know, I still have the books to this day from my conversion therapist, things like you don't have to be gay is the title of the book oh my God. and like all these other books. And 
people are like, why did you keep them after all these years? And I thought, because that unfortunately is a part of my history that I think one day I can, I can talk about and feel like someone else can benefit from. And it was a major part of my reality uh, for a long time. And I was led to believe that if I did more masculine things, that if I was in a relationship with a woman, that I was, if I was married to a woman, if I had a child, you know, that those parts of me would go away. Mm. And that's what I did. I got married. And later in my marriage, I had a child. And, you know, I can't speak for the experiences of my former spouse, who I still love and adore. And we are navigating new parts of our relationship. She converted because of me. So she wasn't as indoctrinated or was as, you know, kind of roped in as I, she didn't have Deeply all the program. Yeah. She didn't right, have the dogma right. that was associated with it. And honestly, I've heard a thank for being willing to, you know, a few years into our marriage, she started to come to me with questions and conversations that she had within Mormonism. And, oh, I was always one led to believe that. I don't know if you've seen Book of Mormon, the musical, or, mm-hmm, you know. I have. Yeah. yeah, yeah you know, yeah. The, the thing about that is I don't know if I'm supposed to laugh or cry because that's my lived trauma. That is like, right, it's like, it's right. so tremendously accurate. And yet that's my lived experience. Yeah. And it really, like, fucked you. Oh, like, yeah. You know, no. Like, it really, I, so, to, you know, to be frank. So, yes, of course. Like, it's, it's a, I can imagine it's incredibly complicated to yeah. know how to how to respond to that. And, um, but you know, there's the song, turn it off like a light switch, you know, and Uh that's where kind of what we're expected to do. And so anytime that she would come to me, I would just, I wouldn't say turn it off like light switch. The other metaphor that we use is, okay, so we, you put all your concerns in this box and then you close that box and you put that box on the shelf. And then when we go into the next life and we're with God, we can take off all those things from that shelf and we can open it up and talk to God about it. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. So, because I, I read on your Instagram and that's where this comes from. Like, so I didn't know the backstory of this mm-hmm. and reading on your Instagram about how you can put all your stuff in a box and just keep putting it in boxes mm-hmm. and keep putting it on the shelf. And then eventually that the shelf's shelf gonna breaks. break. And you are left with the contents of all those boxes right. spilled out, spilled all everywhere over the floor yeah. that you then have to deal with. Yeah. And yeah. so there was a time where she was bringing in all these things. And I just said, you know, put that in your box. And after a while, the thing I loved, one of the things I loved most about her, she's like, I'm, I can't keep putting these in boxes. I can't <laughs> right, keep like, doing that. I don't that. have enough boxes. Right. And this is, mm-hmm. there was a time where I was turning into a self-righteous asshat. Like, there's no better way of me being able to say that where, you know, I just expected her to pray harder and like to be more obedient to do that because I was doing that, right? Well, you were doing that, of course, right? So if that's what you have bought in and you've spent your whole life, you know, like, yep, I am 100% in on this message. I know how to be a perfect Mormon. There is a way to do that and I am going to do it. Then... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it makes complete sense. Well, and especially that, with that, all the time that I'd spent, you know, I got married after I left BYU, which was a failure in and of itself to leave, you know, God's university unmarried. What that's the premise of our existence was oh. to have, you know what I mean? So, yeah, that's a whole different I area. didn't know that. <laughs> yes, oh, yeah. wow. Okay. That's um, a whole other thing. Yeah. And so, um, I here was all the work that I had done over the, you know, I was... 29 years old when I got married and I was thinking, okay, but if I, if I start unloading things on the shelf, like we're going to fuck everything up, you know, like I can't, I can't lose this status because if I do, then everything else is going to fall apart and I'm going to lose my spot, you know, essentially is the way that I felt. Right. Right. And there was a lot of challenging conversation that we had. There was finally one day that we were in one of the meetings at church and something was said and it didn't sit right with me. And so I looked over to my ex-spouse who had learned to just let it be. And I saw the pain in her eyes. And for once I had this feeling of sympathy of, 
this is causing harm mm. to, to someone that I love. Can we acknowledge the harm that it's causing you? So I started to give myself permission to start to take away some of those boxes from the shelf. And it was kind of like this effect that happened. And I guess this would have been like 2015, 2016. That's what prompted the avalanche of, of things started to happen. It wasn't until the last few years that's really come along really quickly. But I started to, to take away those, those aspects. And, you know, then I finally started to see a therapist again who had no association with religion or Mormonism. Really, like, he knew nothing about the dogma. I knew nothing about it. So here I'm trying to explain that. And finally he said to me, he's like, so what happens if you don't go? to church. And I was like, excuse me, what? Like that's, that's an option. Yes. Right. And I was blown away. Is that even being an option? And he said, so the worst that can happen is nothing. And I was like, right. And he's like, so why don't you just see what happens when you stop going? Mm. And I just needed someone else to give me that permission to do it. Someone who knew nothing about it. Well, and I think it's like, it's one of those things where when you're in something and whatever it is, I mean, it could be a, it could be a religion, it could be a job, it could be a marriage, it could be a, where you're, this has happened to me and I think it's really universal where you think of these 75 million ways that you can try to make things better and you contort yourself and you go through, jump through all kinds of hoops and you do all kinds of things and then however it happens, whether it's an outside person or whatever the, the the catalyst is, that to make you think for the first time, I could leave. I could stop. And like just that thought, the simplest thought, I've experienced it where it's come in and it's like once it's there, and once you have that, once once you've formed that thought in your head of like, wait a minute, maybe I could just not do this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. That that to me has been kind of the beginning of the end in terms of like the indication, the internal indication of, oh, this is this is how this is going to go now, right. I think that that is such an accurate way to be able to illustrate that. And I, when I look back at that time when I started to step away, it was hard to know if that was the right decision. Obviously, I at this time, I know that it was, but I started to see the impact of ostracism, of potentially cutting people out. When you start to question your faith. Who do you talk to about that? You usually talk to an ecclesiastical leader who tells you the same things that they've always told you. But in reality, you just need a safe space to be able to have that. And all you want is for someone to say, you know what? I had that same question and I've wondered that too. Because you're, you're putting down those walls and that's a really tender place to be because if you aren't received with that, then you're just like, oh shit, now I just like did this person and I'm going to be judged for that. And Mm -hmm. I'm going to be seen as, you know, disobedient or this person really must be struggling this way. What choices are they making that's causing them to do this? And there's a lot of shame in that. What's wrong with me? Right. That I can't do this. What's wrong with, you know, this, if, if everyone else around me seems like they can do it and I can't do it, then it's got to be me. And I think that was the hard part is, there weren't a lot of resources of people to talk to and you didn't know who you could trust about that. Oddly enough, my best friend from college, it was her in-laws that I don't know if they just saw what was happening with, with, you know, my ex-spouse and I or what, but they were the first safe space that we had that we could come to them and kind of have, have that dialogue. And it was so refreshing to be able to see, Hey, if we're going to stay, like, here's how we can do it. And in reality, we all ended up leaving, you know, is what ended up happening. 
But that's a big reason why, as I started to leave, I started to become a lot more public with it. Because when you leave a faith, it's isolating in every way possible. And, you know, there was a time where, and I, and to be honest with you, I think a lot of this was self-inflicted too, um, where I didn't talk to my family um, because of how the response was when I came out. And again, I don't, I don't fault them for that. I'm not mad. Yeah. It was a way for me to protect myself when I, when I was leaving a faith because as a result of that, I was essentially potentially removing myself from my family for eternity. And that's, Mm. that's big consequences in, in the Mormon realm. Yeah. And that was really hard to be able to, to navigate that. And when you also have so much invested in it, you know, like BYU will always be on my resume. So I will always have Mormonism as part of me, regardless. I still have a Utah phone number, even though I never lived there. I just went to school there, but like still people are like, Oh, Utah, you know, like people are going to associate that immediately with Mormonism. And no matter when I go back, I'm surrounded by parts of my history and parts of Mormon history because I grew up in a predominantly Mormon community. And so there are just so many consequences as a result of that. So again, that's a a major reason why I never fault anyone for being afraid to leave. And at the same time, being able to talk about it, I do think shows a tremendous amount of courage because of the fact that you, you recognize the, the potential in, in, in cutting out so many people from your life. And, and what I'm sure feels like to them is completely turning your back on them in every possible way. I, and I think one of the, probably one of the hardest parts, and I, I can't speak for my parents, and so I'm making assumptions here, but you know, they, they did teach me in the way that they best saw fit. And a lot of that is ingrained in Mormon doctrine. And so for them to separate that, do they feel like they're failed parents as a result of me leaving Mormonism? They're not failed parents. And if by some chance they're listening to that, I hope that they, they realize that I'm sure that it's shameful to them, but I'm sure it's also heartbreaking to them to feel like, I'm choosing to be able to leave this. And as much as I love them, it's something that I, I couldn't stay in either. And realizing how that impacts these kind of deep relationships and further complicates them. You know, I stepped away essentially in 2016. And every year when I would go back to see my family, we would go at the behest of my ex-spouse. And I really didn't want to go, to be honest with you because going back was reliving my childhood trauma of actually being a gay child right. in a anti-gay community. I remember one year we went back and I got food poisoning. Mm. The next year I got back, I got food poisoning again. The next time I Your went body back. Knows. Your body knows. I, there yeah. was four years in a row that I kept on getting viciously ill and wow finally in so it would have been literally the month before the pandemic hit i made the determination or the decision that i was going to go back home with my resignation letter to the mormon church in hand as a way to be able to see if that's really what's causing this response mm. And I went and I didn't get sick. That's fascinating. In that moment, and I, I had been contemplating it, but I, I initially made the decision not to, not to remove my records. And I should make it clear, when you're removing, removing your records, the reason why this is M- Mormons love their record taking. That's why they love their genealogy. That's why they love, they love records. And they, I don't know, exactly what it is. I'm sure there's some scripture that I would have been able to put, you know, throw (laughs) to you at some point in time when that was an active part of my life. So essentially by 
me removing my records, I am taking the act of excommunicating myself. Meaning that anything that I did that was in favor of my salvation, any actions that I took, any covenants or commitments that I made, that I would be removing myself from that. And essentially, like, I would not be with my family for eternity. I would not be in God's presence. Mm. And I was committing a significant sin that some might consider, again, be next to or similar to murder, mm. where what they essentially, I'm, I'm making a decision where I'm looking at the sun and I'm saying the sun isn't there. It doesn't exist. So at the time, how much deconstruction of this stuff had you done? Because I imagine that it's this very complicated thing where you're leaving and when you leave a church that has dictated how you believe and what you believe about basically everything, mm -hmm. that when you step outside that system, you're left like kind of not knowing what you believe, you know, or what is it, what is Mormon and what is you and, and what you even means, you know? And so at this time, at this point, you know, you've, you've, you bring them your resignation and are you believing that you are now, you know, sort of damning yourself to and, hell and in some you know, way. Yeah. to hell in some way. And, you know, and that, and so is, are you still there kind of in your head? What's going on for you there? I think by that point in time, it wasn't that I felt like I was damning myself to hell. It was that I was already in it as long as I stayed. Oh, yeah. Because I was seeing the profound impact that it was having on me. And, and around, at this time, um, we were expecting our first child. And oh, wow. mm -hmm. that was also something that prompted me where I just said, I can't pass this on to my child. I, I can't, I can't put my daughter through the same trauma that I'd experienced. Mm. And I knew that she deserved the opportunity to not have my generational and my religious trauma. And I didn't want her to be put in a position where she felt like she wasn't inherently loved, regardless of who she loved or how she identified or what she believed God to be or not be. Mm. And I think that was a huge, powerful motivator for me is when you're realizing that generational trauma it has to quit with me in some way. And sure, I'm positive I'm going to pass on aspects that I don't. I choose not to. I have acknowledged that my daughter will go to therapy because of something that I either did or did not do. I mean, I think uh, to, you know to be to be generous to you and true. I think that this is true of all parents, <laughs> yes, right? Like, right. I think I think that this is. I think you know kids end up in therapy despite their parents' right. best intentions yes. all the time. Right. But yes, and and I just so hear you and I so honor that. And because that is, um, I mean, it's just enormous. And I you think know, it is. Yeah. And I think that's, by that point in time, maybe I realized that if hell was real, I was willing to, I was willing to be there for her. Mm. Because I didn't want someone to experience the same pain and trauma that I did. So it's amazing how that was really one of the, probably the biggest motivators of all was realizing that that's not something that I wanted to pass down yeah. to, to someone that was biologically mine. So I came home from the trip and I sent the letter and I didn't, I told a few people, I didn't tell many, but I openly spoke of it um, at the end of the year via Instagram. And that was the first time that my family knew. Mm. 
and what turmoil was already there continued um, was probably exacerbated. And again, not at the fault of them. I know that I removed myself too as a way of self-preservation. And, you know, this was all happening as well. This happened a month before the pandemic hit. And so that just threw gasoline on a fire that was, that initially kind of had some flickering in 2016 and then really came to be, you know, in February, 2020. And then came the pandemic where I'm expecting a child and I'm spending a lot of time alone and a lot of introspection time and a lot of time reading a lot and listening to a lot of podcasts and starting to really come to this realization of I am gay and there are a lot of consequences here by acknowledging that. So starting to realize that not having said it out loud by that point in time, but coming to these realizations of what was transpiring. And I think the pandemic, as much as it put a fire on that, was the first time that I had a lot of introspection where I gave myself the peace and the time to be able to realize what was actually happening. I mean, as a result of that, my mental health was in complete shambles. Mm -hmm. When you're, again, starting to realize these things that you thought to be true or thought to be fixable or thought that you could change that aren't. And what are the consequences that has for so many people that you love? And being put in a really challenging predicament. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's an impossible choice. I mean, it's, you know, both both paths are painful. Right. And so it's is the pain of staying the same greater than the pain of changing. And when you realize that your choices could also have pain inflicted on someone else where here I am trying to avoid trauma being passed to my own child. Right. And yet I have the potential and the strong likelihood that that's going to happen to my spouse and the continued consequences of how that impacts my family and other relationships and those who are within Mormonism that I once had close relationships with. Again, this is a major reason why a lot of things have come to light within, I would say, Mormonism the last 10 years as a whole because of the internet, because of podcasts, because of resources that are more available, because of people willing to share their stories. And I think that's why you're seeing a deconstruction community within religion as a whole becoming really large. Something that people are not as afraid to talk about because there are more voices doing that. Mm -hmm. And it's easier to find them. I think that it's so important, right? Like, because what keeps you in it is this shame of feeling, believing you're the only one. Right. Oh, I mean, the number of gay divorced dads that I have connected with since coming out, a, a gay ex-Mormon divorced dads. One was one of my roommates from college. Oh, wow. I would have never guessed. Wow. And his experience started about two years before mine, and he had older kids than I did, and multiple of them. So clearly I'm not the only one carrying the shame and this this feeling of feeling stuck of and knowing how to navigate it and you know truly like throwing yourself into the these unknown territories and then when you get there you're just like fuck did mm. i want to leave these comforts because i can't say that in the last 8 months I haven't been in the darkest parts of my life. And I thought I knew what darkness was. I wish that I could say, you know, before I came out for 37 years every day, suicide seemed like a reasonable option to me. And I know that I'm not alone in that feeling when you grow up in a anti-gay environment and religion where you think that that's a reasonable option. 
And I'm, I'm glad that I never followed through on that, despite thinking that that was a reasonable possibility. Once I came out, though, that desire to remove myself from existence went away. But it's almost like then I sat in those really dark moments. Yeah. And strangely, because I was willing to sit in those, I have never seen such glow and growth. It's like I have, because I've been willing to sit in those. Sorry. I'm already an emotional person, but for the first time I can say I'm proud of myself for being able to have that growth and that glow. Because for so long, because of my religion, I made myself smaller. I downplayed who I was. I dimmed my light to make everyone comfortable, including the person that I was taught who God was. Mm. And so I have a really complicated relationship with God, unsurprisingly. I have a hard time with God. I have a hard time with praying. I have a hard time with acknowledging if God is a man. That's not comfortable to me because of, again, traumatic events. So praying, speaking to God, because when I prayed to God, I asked that this burden be removed, that I, I promised him everything in order to have that. And I, you know, I gave in every possible way that I could in order to be able to have that. And I wasn't provided what I was told I would get, what I was promised. And the hard part is, now that I've left, it's almost like the people who still believe that and just be like, and see what happens. Mm. And see, he really didn't try hard enough. And God would take that away oh it's such a lie it's such a like complicated gaslighting like horribly confusing lie i know again my story might not be special but this is a here's the thing it might not be special to someone listening to this but it's special to me now because i'm honoring the experiences that i've had and i'm also doing everything that I can to be able to ensure that I'm no longer a victim to it and that I can help ensure that people don't feel alone, that they don't feel like they're the only ones experiencing these things. And again, it goes into that once you're willing to take the space to be able to acknowledge that something might not be right for you. It's like everything else kind of comes in this natural avalanche of what's meant to be having space in your life and what's meant to stop. Yeah. What are some of the other things that have shifted for you as a result of this, you know, this one first choice and then these other choices and with each choice becoming more aligned with your own internal truth? I've, I'm getting out of binary thinking. I'm getting out of all or nothing. I'm getting out of perfectionism. That's been the biggest area. You know, a male God isn't comfortable to me. A female God is a little bit more comfortable. A non-binary God. <laughs> now we're talking. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's where it's at, right? Right. In a religion, you are taught to have answers for life's difficult questions. What if it's just fucking difficult? Right. What if we don't need answers? What if the answer isn't yes or no? What if it's somewhere in that messy in between? Because I wish that someone wrote a, a, a book about divorce and parenting a toddler and becoming a gay man and leaving a religion all at once and sure I could write that book and it could <laughs> someone could experience all those same things 
and it literally won't speak to them mm-hmm. because it's only it's subjective to me and my lived experiences and my trauma. Right. There's a lot, there's a lot more room for so many answers in so many different situations. And so getting out of that non-binary thinking in, in so many ways has been really powerful. And um, I'm learning how to give myself a lot more grace, which is something that you would think that in religion you would, you would be able to do. To be honest with you, I feel like that's not where we're taught that. I want to meet someone who's religious who does that. Yeah, it seems like it's it's one of the, it's like it's a nice thing to say, but it seems like from everything I know about organized religion, it's basically at odds with doctrine because it's this idea of perfection. Like you have an there's an idea of, of what you're supposed to be, and so deviating from that is seen as wrong. And so there's so little room for grace. Right. So I'm, I'm learning about that. And mm. I'm trying to learn that I am inherent of love, regardless of a God or of anyone else's love or acceptance. When I was a missionary for the Mormon church, the first lesson that we taught people was that God was our loving heavenly father. And I remember teaching that lesson to people and honestly, truly believing that about them. Mm. And I saw myself as someone so broken that God loved everyone but me. I mean, it's, you know, you say that, and I'm struck by, I just, I remember what you said a little earlier about how it was watching the pain on your former wife's face and seeing this is harming someone I love, and that that for you was kind of a catalyst more than the fact that you had been harmed you know, supposedly someone you love, you having been harmed for your entire life every day by this stuff. I'm glad that you said that. It's like, you know, I'm I'm fortunate enough to have a therapist right now and I've um, recently acquired a life coach because I'm in this midst of my life where I'm building a life in the way that I see fit as opposed to pleasing everyone else and living a life that they see fit. Mm-hmm huge and that doesn't come naturally to me to think that to put it as you phrased it i of course not yeah like how could it right i've always seen myself as someone for punishment and penance and that i have to mold myself to be loved so that's where that perfectionism, where that accomplishment mentality has come from. It's a big reason why I had a tremendous swimming career, a, you know, academic career. I, um, I was an academic All-American three times. You know, I went to law school. Um, I work two careers now. I, you know, I'm an attorney and I'm also an online nutrition coach. Yeah, you do. You, you have a lot of jobs right now, <laughs> something I observed from looking at you online. Yes. So, and that's a hard mentality to get out of as well when you place so much in your value based off of like what you accomplish. And, you know, I'm fortunate enough where I love my careers. I mean, being an attorney as a whole, that's a different story, you know, but my job right now where, where I'm at, you know, I provide civil legal services to people who can't afford it. And that is valuable to me. Yeah. Yeah. But, I have constantly felt the need to seek validation in every possible way and to be able to make everyone else more comfortable, more happy. So to put myself first, to love myself first, to know what that looks like, it's uncomfortable. I hate it. It's not familiar. (laughs) Our brains like familiar. Yeah. Even if it's painful, right? Like even if it's wrong, there's a, it's a biological imperative that we will gravitate towards familiar 
even if it's harming us a lot of the time. <laughs> right now, I've realized that my I've been functioning at such a high level of anxiety and stress that any chance that I have to be able to bring myself down from that, my body doesn't know what to do. And it's like, I crave filling in that gap. So that's probably why I do all the things that I do is if I have a moment to relax, you know, I'm sure it relates with many people who are listening. You feel this guilt for just sitting. Oh, I relate to that. I mean, I had to teach myself nervous system regulation. <laughs> like I didn't, my nervous system didn't know how to be a, didn't know how to be a person, just didn't know how to do anything except function at a, a level that was so high or what I thought was so high, but was actually, you know, probably not like was actually harmful right. to me. Right. right. And like not particularly effective at what I was doing, but I was so conditioned to be in this heightened state of stress and hypervigilance and all kinds of things all the time that when I started to do the work to undo that, it was, the irony was that comfort was so uncomfortable. <laughs> like, like I didn't get it, you know, like. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, I relate with that in just so many ways. And what's amazing is when we stop these things, when we quit them, we fill that gap. We feel the need to be able to do that. And it doesn't mean that it, it doesn't always need to be filled. And I think that's a big reason why I haven't rushed into spirituality, maybe just because a lot of the language that's used is really triggering and I'm still in a place where it doesn't always feel safe to me. You know, I was, I was baptized Methodist the same day as my daughter uh, over a year ago because a lot of what is taught, at least by the, the pastor there, resonates with me. I, I do have a quick story that in some relation to that, but... I remember the first Easter, it was an Easter Sunday that I went to this, this Methodist congregation and we walk in and it was a black woman leading the service. And that was the first time I had stepped foot in a church in a while. Mm. And I don't know if that's, people realize how big that is how big that would be with the Mormonism because Mormonism has a history with racism and blacks as well as it's a very white, it's a white patriarchal church. It is ran by old white men. Right. And women can't be priests, right? Correct. Like women don't, yeah, they, yes, they can't. Yeah. So here I am in this church and I see that for the first time and I am just struck in this awe. And I say, this is, if this is what church is, this is what I want church to be. Mm. And it went on to be led by another woman who had a doctorate, who was actually trained in how to teach and preach, as opposed to a lay person, which is what Mormon Mormonism relies on, is there's no training. You know, you are do your responsibilities. You could be the leader of a congregation and be a welder. And literally have no training. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's fascinating. And so, I mean, the fact that I, two of my professors in law school were my ecclesiastical leaders of my congregation. And that complicates. Oh, it's so complicated. Because here I am confessing my sins, quote unquote, to them while also needing their recommendation Right. And they grade me. Mm. So that's a whole, again, that's a whole nother story. Like I wish that we had more time because there's, there are so many oh, avenues. So many that layers. Can, yeah. There's so many layers. So many layers to that. But it, so I, I joined this Methodist congregation and I've done it very tentatively, but the glimpses that I see by the inclusion of women and BIPOC and gays and lesbians and trans and all those, you know, all the areas, it's not just an old white man anymore. And that gives me hope for 
potential for a spiritual experience later in my life. I don't know what that looks like. I have admiration for people who choose to stay in faith in some ways. And I hope for any of those that are listening, I want you to know that I still respect you if you're choosing to stay. And I honor your choice to stay. And I'm, I'm so glad that you find joy and peace there, or even despite the complication that you have in your relationship with God or in that religion, that you feel that it benefits your life in some way. And I, I truly do honor that. I'm not saying that as lip service, but I, I hope that this dialogue causes you to at least consider how the teachings that are there can cause significant harm and trauma and really devastating experiences for someone else. And when you are witnessing that harm or you're able to hear it or you're able to place yourself in the shoes of someone like me, who has taught these types of things where if you have the courage to raise your hand to say, can we consider how this dialogue might be harmful or hurtful to someone? And if you don't have the courage to do that, do it within yourself to say, if I were in this person's shoes, I can understand why this can be harmful or hurtful and not resonate with them and why they choose to remove them, themselves from it. Trust me, so many parts of me wanted to stay. It was comfortable. It's familiar. I miss so much of it, but it can't come at the detriment of me living and glowing and growing and creating to help create a life where my daughter can't have that, that type of opportunity to completely avoid those type of experiences. And that's ultimately why I did quit Mormonism, not only for me, but in recognizing that the trauma has to stop somewhere. Mm. Zach, thank you so much for being here. It's, it's been so moving to hear your story. And I appreciate too, that you came to talk about this while you're still in that sort of liminal space, you're still figuring things out. And I think that one of the things, you know, we've had a lot of people on this podcast, kind of from from different spaces. And recently, we've had some guests who have moved through a lot of things. I mean, we had Mar- we, we interviewed Martha Beck the other day, who I realized as I was um, logging on to talk with you that we have two gay ex-Mormons in a row, <laughs> you and Martha Peck, <laughs> which didn't, didn't even occur to me. Um, but, you know, Martha is, of course, now has written many, many books and is, you know, sort of a, a expert on living your truth and being aligned mm-hmm. and, you know, is, is, is further away from her own story, which took, which unfolded over probably a 20 year period. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that, you know, it's so important for people who are listening to be able to hear from folks like you, just like from folks like Martha and from people who are in all different places in their own journey and their own relationship to making change. I want you to know what you're doing is valuable. As someone who loves to start a shame spiral and then make themselves a shame sandwich to <laughs> dine in, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, in a, in a tent of shame. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and that's where I, I feel comfortable residing. If I would have had the courage or, or the recognition that I could quit something, I could have potentially avoided a lot of the heartache that I've experienced and, and that I've, that I've caused. And I acknowledge the consequences of, of those and the pain that I've caused. I, I wish that I wouldn't have had so much shame in that. And I should say, I want to share one thing that my therapist told me as like a, you know, I, 
with reframe. I feel like there for so long we talked about boundaries, and I think that those are still like honor that I feel like all the di- dialogue was about boundaries. To me, I think that all the dialogue now needs to go into like a solid reframe. Oh yeah, I love um, a good reframe. I love me a good reframe. <laughs> I don't. I'm just like, please give me reframes, and they they do not come easy for me. That is a skill. Oh, that I'm they are hard. Are you kidding me? Like a reframe is a hard thing. So I was telling my my therapist, you know, because of course I have to prepare myself mentally, you know, for this conversation, knowing that I'm sharing my story with who knows an audience that I, you know, whatever it is. And he said, I don't like the word quit. He said, I like the word stop. He said, that's a lot more grace giving to me because there is so much shame in quitting. So I'm not saying you need a rebrand. No, <laughs> no. And, it's, and that's something that, you know, it's, 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 you're right. And that's something that Holly and I, when we talked about wanting to do this podcast, a lot of it, you know, and, and the word quit was deliberate because yes. it's about reclaiming that, you know, there is Correct. so much because quitting is perceived as failure. It's perceived as, you know, giving up. And we have this culture that's all about, you know, being a martyr to grit and sticking with it and all kinds of things. And it's all just bullshit. And so I completely concur with your therapist. And also, this is our doing our little part to take the power back in the word quit and and define it how right. we want to. So plus stop it doesn't really sound nearly as good. No. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Zach, thank you so much for being here. Where can people find you? The best place that um, you can find me is my Instagram account, uh, motion sustained. So if you think about, you know, in the court of law, the, an attorney files a motion and then the judge determines that they sustain mm-hmm. or deny it. And it's also, um, a lot of my account is also fitness related as well. I'm also, you know, a nutrition coach. And so it goes into the idea as well. It's a play on words that we can, you know, sustain motion. And it also goes with our lives that Sometimes we need to stop and rest, but in some way we're always sustaining some sort of motion. And I love that. So Motions, yeah, you can find motion sustained. sustained. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. You've been listening to Quitted, a podcast about quitting, hosted by Holly Whitaker and Emily McDowell. Our music is by Michael Blumenfeld. Our sound engineer is Adam Day. And our producer is Kathleen Kissich. Quitted is made possible by us and by our listeners. To support the show, join our patron community at patreon.com forward slash quitted.